This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. The book of Esther, we're almost done with it. And with the book of Esther, uh, the name of God is not mentioned. And it's, it's interesting to be able to notice that because if it was an accident, then you would have to wonder, should this book even be placed in scripture? But the whole idea is, is that it was done on purpose. And the question is, can you see God when uh, God is not explicitly mentioned? Can you see God when he's not explicitly visible? Because what you see in this passage is a God that you can see, just as you can see the winds move, uh, you know, bushes and trees, uh, because of the actual change in the tree, uh, it's the same. And when you see history and you recognize God in his hand, you recognize that he is visible. Though you may not physically see him, you see that he is moving. And today we're talking about the idea that God is better. It is better to be with God. Tell your neighbor, it is better to be with God. If you're at home, tell me on the screen, it is better to be with God. And we have to understand this because Jesus talked about this idea that if you follow me, you go up on this narrow path, this path that's hard to follow, hard to walk in with the thorns and all the struggles with it. And so we think simply that Christianity is a command, this, this, this call on our lives to give up all our joys, to give up all the things that we want. But to know that the reason he does that is because we're clinging on to things that don't matter, that it's not good, that it is better to be with God. It is better to be with God. It's better to obey God. It's better to trust God. And it's in that you realize what God is doing here is helping us realize that he does call us to do some hard things. But as he calls us to do some hard things, what he's actually calling us to do uh, and to find is to find a better way, a better life. Uh, with my kids, uh, I um, often have to take away candy right, but right before dinner because dinner is going to be good. And so it's that idea, taking away the Skittles, the fries, the, the chips for the better meal. And so there's three things that we'll be looking at. And the first is a better power. There is a better power that we see here. And uh, from the beginning, it was all set up as, as, a, as a ruse. We've seen King Xerxes, King Azuerus, and we see him with all this power. But what you will see, even in chapter 8, is the lack of power that he has. So in verse 1, uh, On that day, King Azuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman and the enemy, the enemy of the Jews, the Mo- And Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told uh, what he was to her. And the king uh, took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. If you know the context, uh, you have to understand, right in the chapter before, Mordecai was about to die. He had this death sentence where uh, Haman had constructed the 75-foot 75, 75 gallow 
this, this, uh, this equipment that he built in the middle of the night so that uh, in the morning he could get permission from King Xerxes to hang Mordecai. That was the chapter before. Uh, and then what we see here is the complete opposite of that. Now Haman is dead. And Mordecai is given the house of Haman, meaning all of his servants, all of his goods. And uh, the author of Esther um, doesn't share much commentary on what's going on. But what we see, the few comments that he does or she does make, is that that Haman hated the Jews. And that's the, the big idea. That when you're against God, it doesn't work out well for you. That when you're with God, it does work out better for you. And if you remember in chapter 1, verse 4, he showed the riches of his glory, this is Xerxes, and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So for six months, he brings the nobles, the governors, the servants, the officials. He brings and brings all these people to, for six months to parade his wealth, his, his, uh, his splendor, his pomp, right? His, his glory. And so it, it's all set up, if you remember from the beginning, this man with all this power, and what you recognize is it's counterfeit. Because when you, now when we think through the story of Esther, who's the one that makes all the decisions? Xerxes, he makes two two choices out of his own volition. Everything else was a request or wisdom given by by his counsel. And so for him, I want you to think about this, uh, the two things, the two things that he asks for out of his own volition, his own will, the first in chapter one, if you remember, is for his wife to come so she can be paraded around for her beauty. And what, what's the one request that he does have for when, when she does do that? What does, what does uh, she say? Uh-uh. Nope. No thank you, right? That's what happens. And so this man of power has no authority even over his own wife. And then from there, uh, when they do the search for that one young virgin, right, that, that was the, the counsel of others. This edict to destroy all the Jews, that was by the recommendation of Haman. And then even in this passage, what we see is that Esther is being influenced, and Esther influences Xerxes. What you see is that all these men and women that have this power is given that power. They do have power. Xerxes had power, but what we recognize is that it was given. It was it was. It's, it's fraudulent. It's a bluff. It's temporary. And Jesus knows this. This is why he's so confident when he faces his time of death. In uh, John 19, you may remember, uh, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And that's Pilate's attempt to put some fear into him. Do you not know who I am? Do you not know the power that I hold? And Jesus' response is, well, if you can see it, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. That's how Jesus sees it. That's how he sees the world. He sees the structures, the, the governors, the presidents, the kings, the prime ministers. He sees all of it as God giving them the authority. And at any moment, God can take away that authority. And that's the story of the Bible. We see Nebuchadnezzar. We see Xerxes. All these men with power. But at a moment when God wills it, they lack it. Pharaoh, same story. And the story that I used to illustrate this in the beginning is the Wizard of Oz, right? When Dorothy and, and her friends uh, try to uh, up, you know, appease you know, this wizard, they find out at the end this wizard is nothing but a sham, hiding behind this counterfeit uh, machine to pretend like he has power. And so again, you see this throughout here, right? In verse 18, or in, in, uh, in verse 15, we see that the royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, it's who that wears it. It's Mordecai. And it's who that wanted it in chapter 6. It was Haman, right? When, when, when the king talks to Haman and says, you know, I have this man that I want to honor because I delight in him. Haman is thinking, oh, it must be me. And so what does he say? He says that if I can, or if this man that you delight in can wear the, the royal robes in, in chapter 6, right, uh, which the king has worn and the king and the horse that the king has ridden in. It's this idea that, that everything that Haman wanted falls to nothing. But yet, it's Mordecai that's given that honor. You see, when you give yourself to God, what you recognize is that he is the one with all the power. Because that's what we want in our lives. When we struggle with, with anxiety, what, what we struggle with is this idea of wanting control. And when we lack control, anxiety shoots up. But what's anxiety? It's really a symptom of pride. Right? It's the idea that we think we should be in control. One of the great uh, truths of the gospel is to realize you're not in control. You don't have all the wisdom. You don't have all the figured out. And so what the gospel actually does is free you from anxiety. Because the reason we have anxiety is not because we don't have control. It's that we think we should. And so even for Jesus, right before the cross, he is not anxious. He tells Pilate, the reason you have this authority is because it is given to you. And throughout this, the Bible, throughout redemptive history, what you recognize is it's always the humble person, the lesser person that God uses. Because there's a better power when you're with God. When you think about Esau and Jacob, it's Jacob that the blessing flows through. When you think about Rachel and Leah, it's Leah, the less pretty one, that the blessing flows through. It's Joseph, the rejected son, who is put as, uh, has, uh, has, has his position of privilege in the Egyptian kingdom, right? And you see this throughout Scripture, that Jesus himself, right? He is the one who did not seem to have that physical glory. And so people passed him by. And I, I want you to think about this. Why does that happen? Why does it happen? Why is it that God always uses the lesser? 
Why is that? Is it simply that he just likes to trick people, right? Is it simply that he just wants to uh, keep us guessing? There's always a reason. There's a clear reason throughout Scripture that this happens. And we see this in 1 Corinthians, talking about those who are in the church. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about how, in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Right? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the beginning. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being might, might boast in the presence of God. And at the end of it, it says all of this is so what? That the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What's this saying? It's saying that the reason we don't see God, we don't recognize God, it's because our wisdom leads us away from God. Do you see that? That's the reason. The reason God uses the humble, the, uses, the reason that God uses the low, the weak, is because our strength, our pride, our, our wisdom, all of it actually leads us away. So think about it. In your own life, the times that you were most successful might have been times when you're the furthest from God. Because often when that happens, what we're saying is, did you see what I did? Do you see how wise I am? Do you see how, how strong and fast I am? That's often what we think. And that little idea, oh, look at me, look how strong I am. It's that seed of sin that leads us away from God. And that is why God has to. Always, God has to use our foolishness because it is when we realize what we don't have, it is when we realize our lack, that is when we recognize God for who he is. It's better to be with God. And when you recognize that it's better to be with God, that he has the power, often what you recognize is it's in your weakness God will use you. There's a better power, and then there's a better law. And you have to be able to see the, the, the humor here. Uh, because uh, at this point, uh, they're in a conundrum. They're in a predicament. They're in a, in a situation where it's not easy to fix. Because what you see Esther doing here is she's trying to do the impossible. What she's trying to do here is fix the word that has gone out, the law that has gone out that is unchangeable, right? When, when uh, the king uh, puts his signet ring on, that law, that edict cannot change. And so what Esther's trying to do is do the impossible. And so in verse 3, Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Notice, she's not cool, calm, and collected anymore. Do you notice that? She falls at his feet. She weeps. She pleads. Why? Because some time has passed from the previous verses, from the previous scene. Because what happens in verse 4 is a golden scepter is again given to Esther. And if you remember, what, what, what was that scene? 
It was when she had to go to the inner court to actually approach the king. She's risking her life again. Before she pleaded with the king, King, if you have favor upon me, let my people go, right? That's basically, in essence, what she's saying. Pardon my people from this edict. And then she, he answers to, to a certain degree, but still what remains, Haman has been put away, he has been hung, he, is, he is put to death. But what still remains is the edict of death, the law of death for the Jewish people. And so that's why she's urgent. She's already approached him, and then already he's gone away, maybe minding his own business, thinking, okay, well, that's done with. And so she comes back again, risking her life again, and says, if you, in verse 5, if, if it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written. So she's being very explicit. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, which is an impossible thing, the son of Hamadatha, which he, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Again, the words that she uses, even in her emotional state, is precise. If it pleases the king, right, if it seems right in your eyes, letting him know that I want you to decide. There's no pressure from me. I want you to decide. If this is right in your eyes, right, if I have found favor in your sight, if I'm pleasing in your eyes, and then she makes a connection, the greatest, the greatest leverage that she has, then let this destruction pass. And then in verse 7, we finally see the solution. Then King Azuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. So now she has the authority to write. And seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. You know, we know so much of the Persians because of this rule. Everything was written down. And so we know so much history because they took that law seriously. When the king's word goes out, it does not change. And that's the predicament. As much as the king wants to listen, he cannot change the law. Because the law that they have come up with is impotent. It's insufficient. It does not do what it should. But when you think about the law, it has to be permanent, shouldn't it? That law shouldn't be so easily changed. And so there's some wisdom here. But what you recognize here is the necessity of the word, the law, to be certain, but yet the struggle to figure out how do you write something that can stand the, 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 the test of time? Or how, do you, how do you write something that can stand through all culture? 
When you think about that, you think about the challenge of the king and how silly it is that one time he has put out an edict saying all the Jews will die, and then the next edict is, Esther, write what you need so that you can defend your people. And that's a struggle. That's a struggle with the law. Right? In the U.S. Constitution, by many, has been regarded the greatest document ever created. But even the U.S. Constitution has what you would call amendments, things that were actually put into the Constitution that changed the Constitution, that changed the law. So even in the past 50 years, there's been two uh, amendments made. And so you're right, you recognize the challenge of all of this. And you recognize the necessity of the law, but also the insufficiency of what the law should do. C.S. Lewis talks about this in terms of morality, and this is what he says. These, then, are two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they have ought to behave in a certain way and cannot get rid of it. So he's saying, everybody all around the world, they have a law. Their government has these laws. They have, they, they've, they've come up with what they think is a list of ways in which how our society should live. But second, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. That's the two things that he talks about in terms of the law. That we have this idea that things should be a certain way, but also what the law reveals to us is that we do not behave in that way. They know the law of nature, and they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear things about ourselves and the universe we live in. Isn't that interesting? Right? Why do we even have the law? In Korea, why do we have these laws? We have it because we want it, because we want to live in a, in a world, a nation where, the nation, where the laws are just. But then, why do we have it when people break it? Do you see, it's this, it's this, it's this ironic um, mixture of what we strive for, but how we fall so greatly short of. I mean, if you had a chance to visit a nation and they didn't have a law against murder, would you go? And you can recognize the importance of the law. You would never go to a nation where murder was not against the law. That someone can kill you and take your identity, take your resources, and there's no consequences. That's the idea. And the Bible has done something similar, right? The Ten Commandments, uh, the, the laws in Deuteronomy. It shows us how we ought to live. When we read that, we think, yes, that's how we want to live. But yet, in the same way, we recognize we fall short of that. So what does... God do. Even for God, there is a better law. For the law of the Persians, they put out all these laws that were contradicting and saying, you figure it out. Because they weren't wise enough to create a law that would be sufficient. What does God do? He puts out the Ten Commandments. He gives us the laws of the Old Testament. Jesus clarifies it in the New Testament. What does the Bible do? How does the Bible give us a better law? Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and then they will be my people. That's how he does it. We know the law. We know how we should act. The problem is our hearts. We know the laws of, of the state, but we, but we recognize there's crimes that are committed. People put in jail because they can't achieve that. It's in that you recognize the brilliance of God. The way that he does that is not to give us more laws. What he does is actually renew within us a new heart. He writes it on our hearts. There's a better power, the better law, and then there is a better way. If you don't understand this of Christianity, you will always struggle with obedience. You'll always feel like God's trying to take the good thing away. But when you recognize that God has a plan to take away whatever that thing is, the plan is to always give you something better. And so in, the, in verses 9 to 14, we see this edict that is put out. It's sealed with a signet ring in verse 10. In verse 11, the edict is, Jews, you can protect yourselves. That's the edict. You can defend yourselves. We can't change what was put in the past, but we can, we can have you defend yourself. And that's how the Jewish people survived. It was because of that decree. And what you recognize here are many ways in which God's way is better. Because when you do God's way, there's a reversal of death. There's a reversal of death. The edict of death has gone out. Now there's an edict to defend themselves. There's a reversal of power, right? In verse 15, Mordecai is the one that wears the robe and that wears the royal robe, right? Everything that Haman wanted, all of Haman's possessions is now given to Mordecai. There's a reversal of power. There's a reversal of misery. In verse 16, the Jews, it says of this, the Jews had light, gladness, and joy, and honor. It's fourfold, being very intentional about the blessings of the joy of the Jews. In, in chapter 4, verse 3, the four words described of the Jews are there was great mourning, with fasting, weeping, and lamenting. Because they approached the Lord, their mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting turned into light, gladness, joy, and honor. In God, there's a change in your misery. And then the last thing that we see, which is so peculiar, is a change of influence, right? After the gladness, we read, and many of the people of the country declared themselves Jews. For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Many commentators talk about whether this was genuine conversion of faith. And many say it was. Others say it was a fear. And so because of that, they were just identifying themselves. Regardless, what we see is the power of God to change even the influence of the Israelites. They were nobodies. And now people are trying to act like them and dress like them, right? They're people of influence. And when does this happen? When does this reversal happen? It's when she repents. It's when she repents. It's when she understands her true identity as the people of God. 
It's in that moment when she recognizes her true identity that she stops living for herself. And it's in that moment because she repents, there's this, there's this ripple effect where there's now a reversal of death. Because someone has repented, there's a reversal of death. Because someone has repented, there's a reversal of power. Because someone has repented, there's a reversal of misery. Because someone has repented, there's a reversal of influence. Before, because she, didn't, uh, she wasn't honest about her identity, there was no talk amongst the Jews to be able to stand up for who they are. But notice, it's the moment when, when Esther identifies with her people. Now people want to be a Jew. They want to be a God-fearer. That's what it does. When you choose to claim your identity as a child of God in your home, in your workplace, when you make that your identity, that is when... There's a reversal of these ways, of death, of misery, of power, of influence. There's a, there's, a, there's a reversal in these ways. You see, repentance is this. Repentance is not simply stopping a wrong action. It is seeing the evil. She recognized her evil. It is seeing the evil and turning to embrace Christ, your true identity, and his ways. That's how repentance looks like. For her, she had to risk her life not once, but twice. And she didn't simply do it because it was the right thing to do. She understood it. She was put into a position for such a time as this to identify with the people of God and to risk her life and to come forward with her faith. And when she repented, what you see, that she not is only doing the right thing. She's embracing. This is now everything to her. She's embracing Christ. She's embracing her identity. And she's now following his ways. You see, that's the great miracle of this story. The great miracle of the story is that God uses a timid, young, orphan girl. And when she recognizes who she is, that she's a daughter of God, that she has been put into a position for such a time as this, that's the moment when this, this timid, young, orphan girl becomes a courageous queen of Persia used for kingdom purposes. That's a great miracle. In her life, that's a great miracle in our lives. We try to follow these this law of God by trying to live better, trying to gain all the wisdom, all the understanding. We try to read these books and try to figure out these life hacks. But that's not how it's done. It's when you understand the gospel. It's when you understand the gospel and his love for you, that's when it changes. When you understand it was on the cross, that edict of death that was for you, that edict of death was put on Christ. When Christ takes the penalty, when Christ takes the wrath of God on your behalf, and it's that that humbles you. It's that that helps you understand what God has done. It's that when you realize God, it is better to be with God 
First Corinthians 1.22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. First Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Once you repent, death is changed to life. Misery is changed to joy. Now you have a power and now you have an influence that you have not seen or know of. It's that realization that humbles you and helps you realize it is in your heart better to be with God. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.